and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he really wonders when it is that Ren and Seven will eventually become Ren and Stimpy. That's Matt Morgan. I saw two different people the other day wearing monocles, and I thought to myself, look, this really is quite the spectacle. Hey, that is brilliant. Matt, I, I love that. Were you one of the people wearing monocles, or...? I wasn't. I was just an observer, but um, I, I saw quite clearly. That love it. Oh, oh, that's that warms my heart. I really like that one. That was a that was a treasure, Matt. I, I really oh. focused on it, so I'm glad. Hey. It, I'm glad it came through. <laughs> Up next, a penny for your thoughts, sees. Hey, it's Dana Roach. Um, some neighborhood kids went around after Halloween last week and smashed all the jack o' lanterns. Um, luckily, oh. I found a local pumpkin patch to fix them. Patch. Dang it. Patch. Okay. Well done, both of you. Y'all are absolutely, absolutely killing it. That's that's totally great. This is one of my favorite intros for a while. I love this. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, what is it that we're discussing in this week's episode? This week, we're going to talk about cards that we cut from decks, but then happened to put them back into decks later on. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a pretty fun topic. Things that we got rid of, but then eventually we were like, yeah, no, I shouldn't have cut that card. Let, let's go back and, and go back in time and fix that. So it should be pretty interesting to see some of these weird stages in our deck building journeys. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone since they handle all of the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show as well. The EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. If they lived in your neighborhood, they'd have been the houses that gave out full-size candy bars for <laughs> Halloween. Head over to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels. We even have a very special tier where we actually just give a shout out to somebody just for, you know, supporting us and, and being so great, among other awesome perks that we have all along on the website. But this week, we do want to give a very special patron shout out to Josh Branco. So Josh, thank you so much. We definitely appreciate all of your support. Thank you so much, Josh Branco. And dang it, Dana, you are killing me. You guys are in a great mood for this. I'm so excited for this episode. Let's get into it. Okay, so once again, we are talking about the cards we cut and then eventually added back to our deck again. Um, real quick, let's let's just ask, Dana, is this the thing that happens to you frequently? I know that you tune up your decks a whole lot, so is this a pretty frequent occurrence for you where you're like, I cut this, no, I need to change that, and then go back and forth? Like, what, what is this process feeling like for you? It absolutely is a, something that I that I do. I, I tinker a lot, so I pull something out and then find out that three months later I miss it, so I can go back and put it back into the deck. I, I also log all my changes. Um, I use like a Ar crazy person. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I use Architect for um, my 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 deck lists. So there's a notes field down below, and I basically put a note every time I pull a card out or put one in. And I mark the date as well, and I just put a little note about why I made that replacement. Um, and then I can go back and look later if, if I'm curious. But like, it was relatively easy to to find examples here because I just could go back and look through my my history and see what card did I pull out, and what card did I put back in. That's Matt. 
Is this relatable content for you? Do you also keep a, a date and time stamped log of all of the changes that you make to your decks? I don't. Um, and <laughs> if we're going to be honest, I do this next to zero. I was going through all of my decks trying to find cards that I pulled out and put back in. I have two. I just don't do this. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I love the feeling that a deck is finished. Um, mm. I, if I replace a card, like it's for a reason. And like, I, I don't know. I, I don't like reconsidering decks because like, it just feels like so much like mental labor to go back and like keep track of all that stuff to me. And like, I just, man, I, I'm not good at this. Um, so you guys are going to be carrying this episode quite a bit. <laughs> well, but that is also interesting. I feel as though whenever we do get two examples that you've got for this topic of things that you cut, but then put back in, they will be a bit weightier than the, uh, the fleeting examples that maybe Dana and I have, if we're tuning up our decks a whole lot, I feel like we've got two very different extremes, which means like the, the anecdotes that Dana will provide do have a, a whole lot of like rigor behind them, I guess, but the slow movement of the decks that you're updating, I feel like also kind of means that like you made some important re-decisions in that case as well, that I feel like there's an impact to that too. So give yeah. yourself some credit. It's it's usually either from like a massive overhaul, but yeah, I just, I if I take a deck, if I take a card out, it's just because it's not working. And instead, like, instead of trying to find a place in that deck, I just find a new deck for it. Um, ah. I did the, like a, a really good example of this for me is Camaraderie. I love that card. It's just a great Selesnya card. I really wanted it to work in my Miri deck. And instead, when I made my Kyler Humans deck, the Sigardian Emissary, it was a perfect place for it. And I just was more than happy to put it there instead. And it's been great there where it wasn't as great before. That makes a whole lot of sense. And you know what? That's a really good philosophy to keep in mind as we're talking about all of these cards too, is that it isn't necessarily that you cut it and then put it back into this deck. You cut the card and put it into a completely different deck. So you are still getting use out of that card. That's also a very interesting uh, dynamic to consider. And that camaraderie example is a, a great one for it. Um, so I guess let's get into some other examples now too. Dana, let's start off with you, I guess. Let's talk about some of the cards that we cut and then put specifically back into those decks let's get to it what's an example that first pops to your mind about a card that you removed and then you were like ah no control z um so th there's one that i i've tried a couple different times that i've i've pulled out for different reasons and that's golgari charm um golgari charm the black and a green instant speed and you can regenerate your creatures or you can destroy an enchantment or you can give all creatures minus one minus one those are all very useful things but it's also one of those cards where just once in a while, I would draw it and be like, oh, I really wish to sit artifacts and enchantments or it gives stuff minus one, minus one, but I could really use minus two, minus two right now. So what usually wound up happening with it was when it came time to like add a new card from a new expansion that came out or something, I'd, I'd you know, stare at my, my deck list for the usual three or four hours trying to figure out what I was going to swap out like a normal person does. And eventually just be like, well, that Golgari charm annoyed me two weeks ago. I'm just going to swap it out for, for now. That will be the card I pull to make room for this new piece of hotness. Um, and then like down the road, something will happen. And I'll be like, I just want to have that back at this point because the utility on it is so good. Even if occasionally it doesn't do what I want to do. There's so many times it does do what I want it to do. Um, there's so many times like someone will cast a board wipe and just being able to dodge that by regenerating your stuff is really good. Or or someone drops an Avenger of Zendikar and puts uh, 15 tokens into play and, okay, you're going to let that resolve. And before they can do something else, before they can like cast that nature's lore, you can just kill all those tokens before it gets out of control. 
Um, it just does a lot of really, really useful things. And I find myself missing having that Swiss Army knife in my deck. That's really interesting. I, I feel as though especially a charm is a good example of one of those cards that feels so generally applicable rather than specifically applicable that it kind of becomes when you're looking over your full deck, like if you're looking at your deck list online or you've spread it out in front of you or something like that, it's one of those cards that doesn't fit into such a specific category that it can start to feel maybe extraneous to the deck. But that is exactly one of those moments where like, yeah, but in actual gameplay, it turns out the flexibility is really nice and it doesn't need to have a niche specific situation um, or a specific one particular category that it fits into in order to actually function as as superbly as you've just described like uh, matt when he just described getting rid of all of the avenger tokens before you could put plus one counters on you uh b- before you could put plus one counters on the tokens I-, I feel like that's a thing that he's maybe dana has actually done specifically to do you like <laughs> probably i mean it would have been very handy if you were watching uh our recent twitch.tv slash edh retcast stream um we had lady lavinia's on who was awesome guest but uh yeah i had an avenger of zendikar that came in off of a uh what was it a warp world and um yes yes we had we had a lot of triggers to resolve and a lot of time to resolve them is all i will say yeah and a golgari charm would have absolutely Absolutely. changed a lot about what happened in those moments for sure very much yeah i mean i i i love golgari charm and i think dana you might have been doing it wrong to begin with um you just shouldn't take it out of the deck that way you don't have to put it back in (laughs) right yeah that's been that's been my strategy with golgari charm it's just i've never found this card not useful i uh i love golgari charm so much but yeah i i can relate here um golgari charm is fantastic and i just i've never taken it out of any decks so i can't put it back in it occurs to me that the um the, the tenor of the comments that we're going to get on this episode are going to be very much like, well, why would you have yes, ever taken right. that out in the first place? Well, like, and so I, I actually I can kind of address that. I think um, it's one of those cards where when when the new set comes out and the new card that you want to test out that's like a shiny cool mythic with you know 12 lines of text on it or something is there it's really easy to look at Golgari Charm and go, oh, it's just this kind of boring uncommon from a few you know. I'll just swap that out with this. It, it's like not flashy. Nothing it does is flashy or sh- or, or shiny or or really like crazy um, splashy in the game that draws everyone's attention. It's just a really good card. So it makes an easy thing for me to pull out for that new piece of hotness. And then once I realize that that new card is you know not that interesting, then it goes back in the deck. Well, you know, Matt, I just got to say, I'm happy to hear that you're playing Golgari stuff at all, because I know you usually stay away from the Golgari in preference of the Selesnia, but it makes me really happy to hear that you're doing Golgari stuff. And on that note, maybe I'll talk about one of the cards that I cut out of my Golgari decks and then put back into it. How does that sound, Matt? I'll, I'll allow it. You'll allow it? Okay, cool. Good to know. Um, let's talk about Marin for a second, because Marin is awesome, and one of those decks that I probably tune up and change a whole lot, because there's always so many good, juicy toys that can go into a Golgari reanimator deck. Specifically, one, there, there are two creatures here that I'll actually shout out that have been in and out of the deck a whole lot, and I've kind of finally firmly decided, yeah, y'all are going to stay in here. They're Seder Wayfinder and Poison Tip Archer. Seder Wayfinder is that two mana, one, one, when it enters, you look at the top four cards, you can pick a land, and then you dump the rest into the graveyard. It's a pretty minor effect, so minor that I've never been like, you know, oh, this is this is changing my life. But like, it does fill the graveyard a little bit. But specifically, the reason that it's come out so many times is just like, oh, you know, I'd rather have some big, amazing, juicy creature that I can reanimate out of the board. But having stuff to play on turn two, when you're up against someone like Matt Morgan, who's playing things like Valduk all of the time, 
I found it pretty darn necessary to get stuff into play on turn two just to compete against all of the elemental tokens that he's making. So the sort of environment that I play in has kind of like forced me to feel like, yeah, you know what, let's get a couple more things at the lower end of the curve back into this deck. And Poison Tip Archer specifically, ever since Conrad came out where he's just making a whole bunch of damage happen with ever, everything that dies in play, Ever since then, Poison Tip Archer, which was always one of those cards that I was like, eh, I don't know about it. It's the four mana, two, three, death touch, believe reach as well. And then when stuff dies, it makes all of your opponents lose one life. I was like, eh, you know, maybe that's cool, I guess, or not. But then Conrad came out. And not only did Conrad come out, Dreadhound came out. And there are so many of those different effects now that make people lose life when creatures die that I'm just going full in on it. I want a huge board wipe to cause tons of damage. So Poison Tip Archer has also just gone right back into that deck. And I'm really happy to see it there alongside all of its Conrad-y type of brethren now. Yeah, Poison Tip Archer is one of those cards, I think, that, again, it's probably true of Saturday Wayfinder, too. Like you said, Joey, they're both not rares or not mythics <laughs> or just kind of these these workman-like commons slash uncommons. Um, that are, are easy to replace with whatever the cool new thing is and doesn't matter. They're still great. Great Merchant of Asphodel <laughs> is still a great card. It's, you know, it doesn't matter what rarity it's at, but that, that makes it an easy thing to catch your eye and, and, and decide to pull out and replace it with something else. So yeah, I, I completely get it in this case. Well, and Poison Tip Archer is kind of the third musketeer when it comes to these types of effects too, because you have right. Blood Artist yeah. and Zulaport Cutthroat right. that kind of gather all the attention and nobody wants to play the third copy, even though like in Commander, if you're playing something, chances are you, you might want to at least consider a second effect. And if you're going deep on a strategy like Joey does with all of his graveyard decks, having a third or a fourth version of that effect, like that's probably not a bad thing for a majority of decks. So Poison Tip Archer, just in general, just just because it doesn't cost two mana like its counterparts, doesn't mean it's not worth consideration. Right. I like never personally found myself in the case where like, oh, the reach is, you know, fending off tons of huge flyers. So I always discounted it. And I'm like, oh, it's four mana, but so is my commander. And I've got other two mana versions that could do this. I can't even skull clamp this like I could do that with a Zula port. So I always kept on discounting it and discounting it. But then as more and more of these different types of effects that have that similar ability of like things die, do tons of damage, like and when I realized how much I could increase the density of that effect in my deck, I was like, oh, this is actually a whole full version I need to lean into even more. So it did kind of shift as new versions of this effect came out over time. But those new versions are specifically what clued me into how good this card actually is for my deck that I just wasn't able to appreciate because of things like mana cost and stuff like that. That was just kind of like making it overshadow. So I'm so much happier now that I've put this card into my decks and I will hope that when a board wipe does happen, that Dana won't use a Golgari charm to rescue his creatures from dying because I want to get those poison tip archer triggers. I still might. I might do that. <laughs> Dep depends where I am on the add or remove cycle, I suppose. Uh -huh. There you go. There you go. Um, I, I have a couple kind of general ones I want to talk about that aren't specific to a deck. Homeward Path is a card I like. And over the course of the last year, it was one of those cards where when whatever you know some new land would come out, whether it's the MDFC lands or the actual MDFC land spells that we got in Zendikar or whatever it would be, I would look to pull something like, no, oh, I haven't used Homeward Path in a while. I haven't needed to use it. So I started replacing Homeward Path in a lot of decks with whatever those, those cool new cards were, and I didn't miss it at all. And then I went back to play at my card shop three or four months ago after having not done that for a year. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, the reason I haven't been using Homeward Path was because people tended to avoid stealing stuff on webcam. Oh. So once I was no longer playing on webcam, 
I once again really, really wanted Homer Path again because I was back playing in an environment where people were casting treacheries and briberies and things of that nature. Um, so back it went into all of my decks. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a good example of something like I didn't even realize why it wasn't being used until after the fact when I realized, oh, webcam it just wasn't – when I was playing a webcam for a year, it just didn't get used. Um, so, yeah, now that I'm back in that slightly different meta, I guess, that card is much better for me, and I'll put it back into most of my decks. Uh, similarly, um, you know, years ago, I, I was putting three land removal lands into all of my decks. Um, I had strip mines um, back when it was relatively inexpensive. Tectonic Edge and Ghost Quarter are both fairly cheap as well, um, and they still are. So I, I tended to run three of those in my decks. I'm like, you know, if someone's doing something with a Cabal Coffers or a Nykthos or even worse, a Guy's Cradle or a Sarasanctum, I wanted to solve that problem because if, if you don't, you're going to lose the game. And, and so I, I tend to run three of those in my decks. And it was a thing where, again, whenever a new land would come out, I would look at it and go, well, two will probably get the job done. So I would cycle out, you know, the, the ghost quarter or the tech edge probably and leave myself down to two lands. And I did that slowly over the course of a year or two. You know, I would, one deck would get dropped onto two. And then like another deck I would need a slot for something. I'm like, oh, I'll pull the ghost quarter. And then again, I realized I'm not hitting those lands at the frequency I need to deal with the problem lands I'm going against. Yep. So I've cycled back up to three again. And you know, for whatever reason, just that one extra land, I've kind of hit that equilibrium again where I feel like if there's one of those lands out, there's an okay chance I have an answer to it. Whereas when I was running two, I didn't feel that way. I, I love that you've literally described the process of erosion to land cards. <laughs> right, this, basically, like, slow yeah. Slow overtime yep. thing that was happening within your land base. Uh, yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. And again, there's a lot to do with a, a shifting um, of meta from one place to another that is also helping out. But that is the type of thing that's really hard to catch. Like you've mm -hmm. made small incremental decisions over time that like once you eventually get to the end of that point, if you were to look at where the deck started, then you would definitely be able to notice a difference between point Z and point A. But while you were going through A, B, C, D, E, like over time, you wouldn't have necessarily noticed those types of things. It's very difficult to actually try and catch that in the time that it's happening until you finally look back and see where you started. Like well, where these are the types of cuts that are tough. Where I noticed it was I was digging, I was building a deck and I was digging through for land removal lands. And I'm like, why do I have seven copies of Tectonic Edge in here? I remember <laughs> picking up any of these and I'm like, have I pulled all of these from most of my decks? And I went back through and looked, I'm like, I have, I've pulled Tectonic Edge from most of my decks. I'm down to two land removal lands. And then I'm like, have I noticed that? Yes, I have noticed that. I, you know, this, this game last week, I couldn't, I didn't have an answer for that Nick though. The week before I didn't have an answer for someone's Maze of Ith. Um, so yeah, that's how I caught it. I caught it because I noticed I had a bunch of tectonic edges in a pile. Oh, you mean you, you don't just have tectonic edges just laying around like every other magic player, like a stack <laughs> of like 20 ghost quarters, a bunch of read the bones. Cause that's been in every set ever. Um, at least I actually if, ran into if you look through my box too. And, and you know what, Dana, you're also kind of inspiring me because I think I need to get a few more of those land destruction lands into my decks in case Matt ever tries to use his scavenger grounds. I need to make sure that I can force him to use the scavenger grounds by trying to kill it before he uses it to exile my graveyard. So I, I, I feel like this is something that you're kind of inspiring me to look through my decks to find the land destruction lands, not for Gaia's cradles, but for scavenger grounds so that I can deal with it preemptively. You, you act like I don't know how to play around it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt will do the thing where he won't just have scavenger grounds. He'll have 
have other deserts in the deck as well to make sure that you can sacrifice those more times to use the scavenger grounds. Or I'll just, I'll sandbag. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not just going to run it out and like, oh, yep, I'm going to do this and not be able to. No, I'm going to use it and then pl- I'm going to play it and then very use it right true. away. Cause... Yeah, very true. Matt, what what is an example of yours? You know, we were just talking about some of these slower shifts that happen over time. Your decks are pretty slower to shift. So what is one of those changes that happened over time for you? Um, so something that I did actually end up putting back into decks was in my Omnath Locus of Rage deck. Um, I had taken Momentous Fallout a long time ago. It just seemed like, well, I have all these effects that are going to draw me a bunch of cards whenever creatures are coming in because you have stuff uh, like Kavu Lair. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield with power three or more, you draw a card. Uh, that was not hard to trigger with Omnath around. But one thing that I did notice was I didn't have a lot of reactive measures in the deck. Everything was super proactive. So if I ever got put on the back foot it didn't ever go very well so momentous fall kind of worked its way back into the deck because i just needed something to do at instant speed maybe i needed a an emergency elemental you know dying trigger from omnath locus of rage in order to ping somebody or or get rid of a creature that's attacking that's going to kill me anything like that momentous fall was just great plus if i don't have an engine running uh, the, typically the deck kind of can stumble and not do a whole lot, and that's just a good shot in the arm. It's kind of like how Dana uses Knight's Whisper instead of a land in some of his decks because it just <laughs> keeps the fuel coming. And, and Momentous Fall is just a great way to gain a little bit of incidental life gain. Um, and then also just drawing cards. Drawing cards is never bad in pretty much any deck um, unless you're being punished for it by like Underworld Dreams or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just having some sort of sack outlet for that I can do at instant speed and then benefit further from that. Like that was just something that I found myself needing because all the other draw effects, like they were great, but only when I was already doing okay. It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a good way to come back, I should say. Mentos Fall is one of those cards where um, whenever I draw it and hold it in my hand, I always feel like, oh, wow, I, I really don't want to have to leave four mana up for this. And then someone does something and I cast it and you draw 14 <laughs> and gain 14 life. And you're like, oh, that's why I oh, left yeah. four mana up for this. All right, now I'm going to win the game. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's it's a great card in the right deck. Um, like it's a game winning card. It doesn't. I guess it doesn't win the game. It enables you to win the game. It's fantastic. Yeah, keeping four mana up, but then like you are definitely right. Like I think one of the reasons that I cut it originally was because I drew it and I just it would sit in my hand for for three or four turns and I wouldn't use it. But like there's never a reason to use it. Like it's that is one of those cards. It it like sums up the whole like it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it type of attitude yes Um, that's what i found when it comes to momentous fall type of cards is i would rather have it rotting away because i had my shields up and i won without it than man that would have just like gotten me out of such a bad situation that I, I really could have used it. Well, it's it's funny how that works with some cards too. Like Teferi's Protection, you're leaving up three mana, and there's definitely been times I've saved three mana for that and not had to use it. And I've never I never felt bad about it. I'm like, because it's Teferi's Protection. But somehow Mentus Fall does feel like it feels a little bit different. <laughs> you it gets in your head, and you're like, oh, I don't. Is this that good? Until you actually use it, and then you're like, oh yeah, hey, this is the stuff. That, that totally makes sense. And you know what? As long as we're talking about those cards that get you out of sticky situations, I'll move on to another example on my end here. Um, we've talked a lot about the green cards and some green and black cards and some green and red cards. Let's talk about some Boros cards now. I have myself a Feather the Redeemed deck. I love her. She is Miss Angel Detective. She is absolutely terrific. And I went through a very strange journey with a couple of different spells in her deck that are of that 
sort of save your skin relation. Um, the cards in question here are Dawn Charm and Riot Control. Dawn Charm is just a fascinating card that has a bunch of different possible modes, one of them being able to like counter a spell that targets you, I think, one of them to regenerate things, and also a combat damage prevention effect. Riot Control is also a fog effect for like three mana, where you fog the combat, but then you also will gain a whole bunch of life for the stuff that's uh, in play that might have been coming to hit you. Um, and I initially put those in because I'm just like, I'm kind of like just a, a single creature for a, most of the game here. Um, so I might want to have some extra stuff, some bonus things to do. And eventually I was like, eh, I don't know, Feather's pretty tough. I'll be fine without it. So it got rid of them in the deck. And then later during a game, I think that very next week, I got Feather out with a Sunforger on her. Sunforger being that awesome Thor's hammer equipment that can go and find you instants if you unattach it from your creature. Just for two mana, you go and find a free instant to play. And as soon as I had the Sunforger on my commander, I was like, oh, you know what I really wish I had at exactly this moment that I could go and fetch with my Sunforger? That Dawn Charm or that cool Riot Control Fog card. I really wish I had those right now because it is the most immaculate safety blanket I ever could have constructed. And I was so sad to see that I'd taken them out. And immediately after that game was done, I was just like, I need to go and find myself that Dawn Charm and get it right back in here because I want the flexibility of that Sunforger being able to actually tutor it out. That feels a bit like a Golgari charm for me. It's one of those things you don't realize how much you miss it until you don't have it. Exactly. This is kind of like a, a charm-heavy episode now that I'm, I'm thinking about it. But it really does feel really cool. And I didn't realize just looking at the card right there on the, the Dawn Charm or the Fogs or anything like that, just looking at them in isolation, I was able to discount them. But I needed to look at the deck a lot more holistically and see that there was another toolbox enabler piece, the Sunforger, that was causing that card to be even greater than it, it looks just on its own face. I feel like this is kind of a lesson that you might uh, go through as well if you're doing like birthing pod stuff in some type of a cool toolboxy or aristocrats type of style deck because you might remove a creature that it is in your birthing pod style deck and it won't be until you're actually in game and you realize oh wait that was my only five mana creature in the deck and to continue my birthing pod chains i really want to have a five mana creature in my deck so i might need to go and change that back in having those types of toolboxy styles to your deck can really be a make or break situation that just looking at the cards individually they the cards are never themselves individual and they do require a more cohesive <laughs> understanding of the, the holistic picture of your deck. And that is a lesson that sometimes you have to learn the hard way. Dana, let's uh, send it back to you. What is another example that you've got for us? Is it another charm? It is not another charm. It is Shambling Suit from back in the Throne of Eldraine. Um, and I'm going to read the whole card because no one will know what it is. It's a th <laughs> yeah, what? It's a three mana artifact creature construct. Um, its power and toughness are star three. And it just says, Shambling Suit's power is equal to the number of artifacts and or enchantments you control. Um, if you had people list uh, the best cards in Throne of Eldraine, they could probably list 50 of them they would like more than Shambling Suit. It's just not a card anyone cares about. And I remember when this set came out being like, that's actually pretty good. But no one else seemed to think that. I never heard anybody else talk about it. And so I tried it out in my, my Demir Artifact deck, and it worked really, really well for me. Except for, again, when the time came to put something else in the deck, I kept second-guessing myself. I'm like, well, maybe Shambling Suit isn't that great. No one else is running it. No one else has ever talked about it. Um, so I eventually like outthought myself and convinced myself that it really maybe wasn't that useful and swapped it out with something else. And then spent the next several months, whenever I would draw that other card, I'd look at it and go, well, this is okay. And Shambling Suit right now would be a 17-3. 
and I could and I could give it un- unblockable with Vela. Like that, I had that realization after it was out how good it was, and I had just somehow psyched myself out into thinking it wasn't that useful because no one was really discussing it or had discussed it among all of the absolute bombs that were in Tornadal Train. Um, that's probably a product of the fact that that's the most broken set printed in the last you know ten or fifteen years. Um, but yeah, I just got in my own head overthinking this uncommon that no one really seemed to like. That was really great in my one particular deck, and and I pulled it out for that reason. So I've since put it back in, and I've hit people multiple times for 15 to 20 damage with it because I've had so many artifacts out, and I've given it an unblockable with my commander. It's just a really solid card in my deck, um, and I knew that. I just somehow talked myself out of playing a good card. I mean, that's that's the worst is when like you overthink something and you take it out, yeah. and you're like, why why did I ever cut this to begin with? Like. I, I was looking at um, upgrading my my Lorehold precon deck and, and saw Bronze Guardian did the same thing. I was like, "What? Why am I thinking about cutting this? This thing is so good. This is, no, no, come on, <laughs> come on, Matthew." Yeah, th- definitely a lesson to learn here about trusting your own instincts because we like we certainly want to uh, take advice from other folks, especially other folks who have a lot of experience in similar types of decks. But there is also still something to your own gut feeling and knowing your own personal deck and the style that you're after that can carry a whole lot of weight. And so, Dana, I'm glad that you learned that lesson too. And Matt, I feel like that's a thing that you that might be one of the things that makes it uh, so slow for you to make updates because you are, carry that gut feeling for the initial draft so heavily. Oh no! I just don't listen to anyone. I, I just it's it's so much easier just to ignore all the noise. Yeah, no. I I, I mean I have all, like I don't build a deck unless I have like a pretty good vision of what I want it to look like. And yeah, I I, I would say I, I try to be fairly loyal. And if I the deck's going a different direction, like. Why don't you build a different deck? Yeah, I mean, there you go. Yeah, trusting your own instincts there. And yeah, I, I, I like the, the instincts that you've got. That's really great. All right, we've got a couple other examples that we want to get to, but let's do that in the back half of the show because for now, I think we should pause and go to one of our favorite segments, Challenge the Stats. There's so much data on EDH Rec, but we don't always agree with that. Sometimes we think that cards see too much play or too little play. That's right, we're going to listen to our instincts even more. So we'd like to challenge those statistics. Well, you should actually, Joey, Follow your instincts and go to altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast. Um, they are the sponsors of Challenge of Stats, so it only makes sense. Um, so if there are any like instincts that you have feeling uh, very uh, uh, whatever it is that they, where you get the, the supernatural feeling that you should be doing something, um, that's probably me on your shoulder saying, hey, altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast for all your alter sleeves needs. Uh, where you can get awesome art. Like, say you don't want somebody to be drawing on the actual card that you have. You want to keep it safe. Protect it with a, a nice, perfect fit sleeve. Altersleeves.com is just a great way to do that. I, I totally enjoy the uh, the image of you guys being my angel and devil on my shoulder. <laughs> uh, of, of Matt, you know, giving the good advice and Dana so, being like, you should just cut another land, Joey. You should just cut another land. The future playmat idea right there. Yeah, <laughs> D- Dana's telling you to cut another land. I'm telling you to double sleeve your cards. That's That sounds <laughs> exactly. about right, yeah. Oh, man, we might have to actually make that. All right, Matt, take us to it. What is your challenge, the stats this week? So my challenge this week, um, actually, it comes from a conversation that we had on twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast. Uh, I was playing my Omneth Locus of Rage deck, and um, I had been building up a pretty big board state as that deck is one to do. Um, just getting everything 
rip and roaring and 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 yeah it was it was about ready to go down um but i had made the comments that i didn't really have any haste enablers in the deck um i don't have any like concordant crossroads because i don't have an extra 50 dollars laying around <laughs> but also just like i i had played around with some some haste enablers but never really uh, kept one around in the deck and chat had mentioned well matt why don't you try rhythm of the wild and i was like that would work but my board state always centers around giving my tokens haste um, and Rhythm of the Wild just doesn't do that. But then I, I got to thinking like, well, are people actually playing that? And it turns out they are. Um, so Rhythm of the Wild, the card that, that was being suggested is an enchantment from Guilds of Ravnica block or Return to Return to Ravnica, I should say. Yeah, that one. Um, but it's it's one in gruel colors. So one, a red and a green for an enchantment that says creature spells you control can't be countered. And then non-token creatures you control have Riot. Um, and Riot was the mechanic where they can either enter the battlefield with either a plus one, plus one counter, or they can have haste. So it turns out that 17% of Omnath Locus of Rage decks are playing Rhythm of the Wild. And if you're using it solely as a haste enabler for your token army, um, that's not how it works because Rhythm of the Wild does specifically say non-token creatures. So if you're trying to throw a whole bunch of lands in the battlefield and then turn everything sideways all in one turn, you definitely want to be looking other places. Um, the creature spells you control can't be countered is a great line of text. Um, Omnath Locus of Rage decks typically depend on having Omnath around. So if you want to make sure you get them on the battlefield, that's great. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. But if you're doing it as a haste enabler for your elemental army, um, Acroma's Memorial, there's all sorts of different haste enablers that you want to be looking at. Even Fervor. Fervor is a card that a lot of folks are already playing. And I think that definitely should be one that you should be looking at instead. Um, Fervor is just two in a red for an enchantment. It says creatures you control have haste. Um, that is all of your creatures. It's not just your non-token creatures. And only 6% of Omneth decks are playing Fervor. So if you're looking for just some sort of haste enabler in the enchantment style card, uh, I think Rhythm of the Wild isn't where you want to be looking. Um, I think there are other options that you definitely want to consider instead. I really like that. That is a, a, a non-bow with the tokens to definitely be aware of. Um, it's crazy, by the way, just how expensive Rhythm of the Wild is. It's like a $6 uncommon. Like, um, yeah, it's it's a little silly. Little it's a, it's a little silly. A little bit crazy. Like, it is a good card in a lot of other places, but probably not for a deck that makes that many tokens. I'm totally with you. Um, and my challenge for this week is also a bit of a rules nombo that it seems like some players are committing in Brokos Apex of Forever decks. That is the Soultime Mutant that you can mutate again out of your graveyard. And... I don't know. Mutate is easily the most complicated mechanic that has ever existed. Yes, I am also including banding in this conversation. Mutate is ridiculously complex. So complex that it seems that 25% of Brokos players are still currently playing Blighted Agent, the two-mana unblockable human rogue with Infect. That does sound like a great target to put a bunch of mutates onto, to power it up and give it a bunch of abilities, including unblockable and Infect. That seems like such a great idea. Except that mutate, one of the words hiding insidiously in its reminder text is that it cannot mutate onto a human. You can only mutate onto non-humans. And Blighted Agent is a human. So the 25% of Brokos decks that are playing Blighted Agent, I don't think should be because it is not a viable target for you to mutate onto. Blooded Agent might need to go find another place to be, like a deck with a bunch of plus one counters, and you can find other things to target with your mutations, like a Scoot Swarm, for example, because that won't be complicated at all. But yeah, find a non-human target for your Brokos decks, for sure. My challenge today is one brought to us by a patron supporter who goes by the Discord name Crystal Who Smiles at Death. That's a good name. 
Yeah, and her, her challenge is for the card Well of Lost Dreams, um, in particular in Solvala Explorer Returned Decks. And Well of Lost Dreams is a four-mana artifact. It says whenever you gain a life, you may pay X, where X is less than or equal to the amount of life you gained, and if you drew, do, draw X cards. Um, and Crystal says, I want to challenge Well of Lost Dreams. It's already seeing play in 17% of Silvala decks, but I think it's too slick of interaction to not be in more. Silvala both gains you life and gives you mana equal to the life you gained, which you can just then use to pay into the Well of Lost Dreams to draw that many cards. It's a really elegant engine to only be in uh, less than one-fifth of, Sil of Silvala decks. I think that's a pretty good point. Um, I think Well of Lost Dreams is a is actually a pretty solid card that people I think don't play much anymore because it feels like it, one of those old cards that was good in the early days of EDH and maybe we've moved past it. Um, I still think it's pretty solid in life gain decks, and I think especially in a Silvala deck where it's just magically doing all the things you want. It's just a way to draw cards off your command. The things your commander is just doing anyway. I think it's that's a good pick. It should be in more than just 17% of Savala decks. All right, cool stuff, you guys. Now let's get back into our main topic. Once again, we are talking about the cards that we have cut from our decks, and then we were like, nah, we're gonna, we're gonna put that back into the deck. It, it actually should have stayed. I never should have cut it in the first place. I'm gonna move uh, into another example for me, and this comes from my most precious, my absolutely most glorious Sir Conrad the Grim deck. He's so lovely. I love him. Dana, you were talking about how crazy the Throne of Drain stuff is, and Sir Conrad is just a Another example of a cool uncommon from that set. Conrad is famous for dealing tons of damage. I mentioned him earlier in the show. He's so good that I couldn't just put him in the 99 of a deck. I had to have him at the in the command zone of a deck as well. Whenever stuff is milled or whenever stuff dies, he does one damage to each opponent. Whenever stuff leaves your graveyard, he deals damage. He can even mill people with that activated ability. He is crazy. But there's a key piece of text on Sir Conrad that is absolutely stunning. He doesn't make opponents lose life. He does damage to them. And that is a huge reason why I went through a particular journey with this card. I had initially included the card Whip of Erebos into my Conrad deck, because Whip of Erebos gives all of your stuff lifelink. And I was like, cool, with the damage of that Conrad's doing and lifelink, I could gain a lot of life off of that. That sounds pretty cool. Whip of Erebos also has another activated ability to get stuff back from your graveyard just a one time. It's like four mana, can only do it at, instant, uh, at, at sorcery speed, and it only happens for the end of the turn. And somehow, I don't know exactly how I managed to convince myself of this, but somehow I convinced myself to remove Whip of Erebos from that deck because I was like, eh, I'm never really going to use that activated ability. It would cost eight mana total to do it, so I don't think I need it as much. And then as soon as I tried Whip of Erebos out again when I was reconfiguring things with that deck, and I saw that just the blank having a lifelink effect on Conrad can be so potent, I was like, oh, I made a mistake. I never should have taken this card out in the first place. Because Conrad does so much stinking damage all the time that Whip of Erebos was easily gaining me upwards of 30 life every time I played it. And I never should have taken it out because that card was absolutely insane. So lesson learned there. You don't need to take advantage of the full effects of the card for it to still be the right card for your deck. That's always my thought about Whip, Whip of Erebos is the, the, the part that was so broken in standard, which was bringing things back, yeah. is useful in EDH, but like just the lifelink plenty of times is more than enough reason to spend four mana on that artifact. 
Yeah. Oh, and I remember the Obzon whip. I played Sadisi whip back then. Like <laughs> Whip of Erebos was so much fun, but it also yep. was really great in EDH just because I don't know why Conrad does damage. If you want to throw Infect on that guy with like a Phyresis, that also counts because he's dealing damage, not life loss, which is totally crazy. Like it's crazy pants. But yeah, the lifelink in there, I was, I'm so glad that I gave that card another chance because I never should have taken it out in the first place. It is a huge, again, safety blanket to cushion my life total to crazy high numbers. I mean, I do want to nitpick at what Dana said to, to pay four mana for that artifact. Um, I believe it's actually four mana for that enchantment. So um, <laughs> it's, it's why, why not both, Gif? Oh, yeah. why not? we can both be right. It's true. <laughs> it's even legendary. Okay, so. Yes, the uh, four mana for that legend. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> uh, Dana, let's move to another example from you. What's another card that was cut and it shouldn't have been? So I, I will I will mention two cards in conjunction because I pulled them both um, from two decks at the same time and put them both back in those same decks at the same time, <laughs> um, and that's Aetherize and Aether Spouts. Um, those are two instant speed spells that that mass bounce attacking creatures back to their owner's hands, or in the case of Aether Spouts, on top of their library or bottom of their library. Um, I pulled them a couple years back when I was, I, I think perhaps overvaluing efficiency in my decks. Um, you know, one's four mana, one's five mana. When I was looking to add something else, it was easy to be like, oh, I'm going to, I want to put in this new two mana spell. Why don't I pull one of those big clunky dinosaurs out? Um, <laughs> I, I think, however, when I said I overvalued the, the, the efficiency, I think I did. I think you need to be cautious sometimes if you're not playing at a competitive level with efficiency. It almost always comes at the cost of, of power to a degree, and you can make your del deck so efficient, it doesn't actually have any way to punch anybody in the face. Like, you can <laughs> field a baseball team full of singles hitters, and sometimes you just need someone to drive them all home, to use a sports ball analogy. <laughs> um, Aether Spouts and Aetherize are just absolute blowouts. If someone swings at you with that full team, it's great to fog them it's even better to just blow that entire thing <laughs> off the board so they have to recast everything or in the case of aether spells it's just gone like they're not going to get all that stuff back um it, even if they put it on top of their library they'll draw one card but like you've just decimated their entire attacking fleet and i i, I got too caught up in not wanting to run these expensive spells even though four and five isn't that terrible. And I found I just really missed the, just the raw power of being able to basically take someone out of the game for having the hubris of daring to attack me. <laughs> um, so yeah, back they went into the, the two decks where I ran them and I've never considered taking them back out again. They are just, they're such a hard hitting card. Like sometimes just you, you can sit back and just let your opponent just do the work for <laughs> like, you with these cards. Like that's, <laughs> Like, but like really hubris is like a good word to like yeah. describe it because like oh yeah i like you have to dana's like you're especially your sphinx deck like that deck makes it like people have to attack you and they have to attack you with a lot of people because if they let you kind of take over not so much with the battlefield but just like with cards in hand and resources mm -hmm. like if they let you get to that point like you're they're just not going to come back so they have to attack you with a lot of people and when they attack with a lot of people that opens them up for these blowouts with aether spouts like that's such a well, devastating that, card that's the that one of the decks where i did that for sure and asperia who draws me a card whenever a creature attacks me there's absolutely been times when i've had mana open and someone swung at me with their team i've been like all yeah. right let's see if i draw aetherize oh, oh there it is <laughs> well, oh <that's laughs> thanks even, friend that's even more savage right you yeah can draw 
Oh yeah, no, that's that's beautiful and disgusting. If, if someone's like playing token decks as well, they're just those things are just right, peace yeah. out. They're gone forever. And Lord, I still can't get over Dana. You just you being shocked at the the, the audacity. Of a person. <laughs> How dare you try to win this game of Commander? I just can't even imagine a person or a situation where someone would think that I'm the correct person to attack. How could they? If I had are- pearls, I would clench them right now. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, dang. That's terrific. Matt, how about you? Let's move to one of your, it might be the final example you mentioned because you only have a few, um, but one of the final examples you have of cards that you cut and then put right back into a deck. Well, so one card that I was very excited about when it first came out was Manglehorn, um, which, and so the, the card, I mean, it's played in 10,000 decks, but I feel like nobody else ever plays it. Um, it's a 2-2 for three and a green, which according to Joey qualifies as being a bear, um, but <laughs> hey, hey, it's neither listen, here nor there. Listen, I was playing in a Eula deck. It was my brother's a Eula deck. I, I play the bears that are in there. They're not all two mana. Some of them are three mana, two twos, but they are still bears. I, I understand the, the I, quips there. I get it, but. It, call me call me a purist, but that the, yes. we'll, we'll move on. Um, but Manglehorn, two and a green for a two-two that says when it enters the battlefield, destroy target artifact, and then artifacts your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. Um, I had the same feeling about this card as as Dana did with Golgari Charm, where I was sitting there, I was like, man, this isn't it's not quite Reclamation Sage. I I don't know, like maybe it's just not good enough. So I took it out of out of my Miri deck, and it kind of sat around. And then Watsy decided that, you know what would be really cool is a million treasures in every single set. <laughs> and the, the, the nice part about treasures is you have to tap them in order to sacrifice them and, and use yeah. them for mana. So Manglehorn, in addition to Miri kind of pivoting and I, I put a Panharmonica on in and, and every single card has a, an ETB ability. So Ooh. Manglehorn slots right in. Um, but also that uh, the, the static ability of just artifacts your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped, that is like strangely relevant in 2021 and soon to be 2022. Um, mm. Just the state of what Wizards of the Coast is doing with all these different artifacts, whether it's treasure tokens or artifact creatures, man, it's, it's actually not a bad thing. And so it, just with everything going on with for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms and all this crazy treasure tokens, um, having that second ability was was definitely worth a look. And I, I haven't been disappointed. That is really, really keen, especially because the, the change you're making there is a response to what are effectively metagame shifts, which we don't usually expect to see in an eternal format. Um, and we would usually more traditionally associate with like a 60-card format. But they do certainly occur. This is something we've discussed about uh, the card Viridian Revel in past episodes. Mm-hmm. A three-mana green enchantment. Whenever an opponent's artifact dies, you may draw a card. Like that also, with the huge insurgence of all of the treasure tokens around there, that is a card that it continues to go up and up and up up in our estimation and Minglehorn the at the time that it was released the format looked different than it does now so you're making a very keen observation there to like go back to old ground that was maybe not as impressive upon first release but things are different now and that's a really good instinct yeah that, that it was a card that i swear i thought to myself i'm going to put this in literally every green deck ever because this is so good. And I was proven wrong. I should not have done that. Um, but I'm coming back around and now it's, it, I'm looking smarter as I, I get older. So yes, I, hey, it works out. That's rad, that's rad. Um, my final example here that I wanna share is also a removal spell. And this is specifically for my Thalese Reverend Medium Orzov tokens deck. Thalese is 
terrific. It's Felice, you can do. <laughs> Matt is judging me right now, so I'm just going to move right on. <laughs> Matt's, uh, Matt's shaking his head in shame. <laughs> bad dad joke attempt. I am sorry. Um, in a black-white deck, one of the things that you'll often find is that you have a bevy of possible board wipe removal spells. You've got your Merciless Evictions. There's the new Vanquish the Horde out there as well. Like, there are so many good options for removal spells, um, for mass board wipes, that there was one that I toyed with a little bit that I could never quite make my mind up about, and that's the card Winds of Abandon. It's the two-mana sorcery from, I think, the original Modern Masters set, where you exile a target creature you don't control, and then it path to exiles that creature. But it has an overload cost for four white white, which means that you'll exile every creature that you don't control. You'll path to exile every creature you don't control. And because there are so many good removal spells, so many bad, like amazing mass board wipes for black and white, I tried this one out and I was like, eh, you know what? Toxic Deluge. Because I mean, you know, Toxic Deluge, it's so much better. But I gave Winds of Abandon one more shot and it completely won me over because it's not just a removal spell for me. The lease is a commander where I have so many creatures in play all the time. I will get like 15 creatures in play because of all the tokens. It feels like I'm Matt Morgan. It's so strange. It's such a delightful feeling. But getting blockers out of the way is kind of a tough thing to do in that deck. And Winds of Abandoned is a one-sided board wipe that doesn't just get me out of a pinch when opponents are ahead and I've got nothing in board. It also literally wins me the game when I have a bunch of creatures in play and I need blockers to go away. So this is another board wipe that I've completely changed my mind about. Wins is a card I've been blown out by so many times um, in the last <laughs> year, probably alone. Um, it's really, really good. And it's it's one of those ones that I, I, I kind of come back to the Golgari charm thing where you say, why did you take it out? Um, it <laughs> because it is that so style. Many. But, 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 I, but uh, I've given a bunch of examples of why I've taken crazy ones out. So, I mean, I, I get it. it. It gets around indestructible. It, yeah. You know, if you're playing that Golgari charm to regenerate something, my winds of abandon doesn't care about that. But again, there are so many good board wipes in these colors. Your austere commands, your right. ruthless evictions. It's such a crowded field that it's really difficult to break into that. But this one was one that I'm glad that I kept trying to let it break into that field because it really did impress me when I finally gave it its true and proper shot to impress me. Well, it's kind of like Dan. And, and damnation even like you you have that flexibility and i think just having the flexibility of like if you're in a pinch you're short on mana you can use it to get just the job done or if you need that blowout you have the option for the blowout too mm-hmm. yeah exactly that flexibility is super huge with it yeah i mean that's that's an easy thing to do in white when you know we've gotten things like um, vanquish the horde or cleansing nova or you know tragic arrogance a few years ago like there's mm-hmm. so many good white board wipes that it, it's really easy to swap one out for that for a, a new really good one that's still really good it's not even a situation where you're pulling it out for a card that winds up not being good there's so many diverse really solid white board wipes right now that i totally get why you swap one out for another one and maybe don't go back to it because they're just you can only run so many and they're they're all so <laughs> very very interesting yeah, yeah, it, it's a it's a tough thing, and uh, that's just another one of those those lessons. I think is that like sometimes you'll put a card into a deck, and you won't have actually given it its due. You won't have really tried it out as extensively as maybe you think you did. You just kind of like made it a mental assumption without getting tons of play experience with it. And this was definitely a case for me. Whereas I put it into the initial draft of the deck, and I kind of just made a, a summation about it in my head based on my expectations of what would happen when I drew it, and I didn't actually like experience it properly when. I did draw it. And that was a like an actual tactile experience that I really needed to get to fully understand what this card could offer me. Yeah. You don't know what you've got till it's gone, I think is the old um, 
Klingon saying. Klingon saying. <laughs> is it really Klingon? All right. I believe it was actually Rat. <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, that probably wasn't reference. that probably wasn't the band. Joey, we're talking about the before times, as in like 2003 <laughs> before you were around. Hey, 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 yeah, no, all of this is super going right over my head. But yo, Dana, close us out. What is your final example of a card that was cut and then re-added? Um, the, the final example um, would have been Blade of Cells in my Jero with Eyes Open deck, hmm. and. It's, there's not a lot of creatures in that deck. Shira was one of only a couple in it. And I was running it primarily to put on Shiro and then attack. And Shiro would make copies of himself that would all die. But who cares? It would trigger the go get a Planeswalker ability. Oh, cool. And it was one of those things where, you know, that was the only use of it. I Like, a lot of times you see a Blade of Selves deck, it's in a deck with a bunch of ETB creatures. And... It goes on whatever the most interesting target is at the moment. So you you have different options, different effects. If you need to blow up a bunch of you know artifacts, you can put on your Rex Sage. If you need to blow up, if you need to go get lands, put on your Wood Elves, whatever. In, in my deck, it did the same thing every time. It just went and got me three Planeswalkers. So I, I wound up swapping it out for something else. And then I was like, oh, going to get three Planeswalkers every time is really, really, really good. <laughs> I don't know why good. I thought why I thought that was boring because that's fantastic. So it, it went back in my deck pretty quickly once I realized how useful that was to have, even if it wasn't perhaps the most exciting card to play in that deck. That Blade of Selves is one that I've toyed around with um, for the Wilhelt zombie precon uh, that I have been upgrading as well because like making more of those zombies, it does depend on the number of players that you're playing with. If you have uh, four opponents, I think you'd get two copies. If you have five opponents, then you'd get three or something like that. But like all of those zombies have amazing bump effects. If I make multiple copies of Wilhelt, they'll each see each other die. So then I'll get more amazing tokens based off of their own death triggers. Like Lord, it's so much fun. So that is a really cool one. But th that's an interesting story there too, Dana, where you have just the one target for it. Granted, it is one in your command zone, but there's like a maybe a repetition that started to feel a little bit samey or whatever. Yeah. But that didn't stop it from being amazing. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, just having cards that aren't... I mean, a lot of these cards kind of fall in this category where they're not like these big splashy mythics or some are mythics, but like they're not the big <laughs> splashy cards that like everybody will like ooze and ahs over the like the great moments, but like they're cards that you just, you want to have because they're either just consistent performers, but they're helping you win games. They're not just gonna have that one big explosive experience. It's just like, okay, I won because of this card. I need to not cut it again. Yes, very much. There's a subtlety to a lot of the cards that we've discussed here. And I think it's just cool to see that these are technically like kind of growing pains for us as we've been discovering the things that are good in our deck. Matt, I know that you said you really like the idea of when a deck is finished. Dana and I probably fall a little bit more into the camp of a deck is never finished. Um, and these are some different examples of how to engage with that because sometimes you're just like, I, I, I got to try these things all over again, give them their proper shot or things have shifted around in the in the meta and there's a new version of, of, of a finish line off there in the future, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, no, 100%. I, I, I am never at a point where my deck is finished. I'm always wanting to, to tweak it. But that, that's what's fun for me. Like, I, I get how someone else who doesn't enjoy that can get to that point for sure. Yeah, well, and especially with all the just the sheer amount of products, like, Having a yes. deck that like I just mentally can be at peace with, yes. um, with where it's at like that that is something that just it I, for me instead of tinkering like I would rather just brew something new, um, come up with a new idea, maybe add a card here or there, but like for the most part like 
it is like just it's just a nice comfort of knowing a deck is finished um, i don't have to worry about it because i like where it's at um and i can just incidentally like over time add a card here and there I like it. I, I really like that a lot. And, and you know what? I'm I'm also here's here's definitely something where I'm on uh, your side more than I am on Dana's uh, than I am in Dana's camp. Matt, I don't think either of us are making detailed timestamped change logs to every time. That <laughs> definitely make not changes um, to a text. So. It's not I have too a day late job. to start doing that, Joey. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a day job for if I want to like document every action that I've ever taken and every every <laughs> click of the mouse. Um, I like I man, I just. If you if that is like what you like about magic, that that's awesome. Like it's cool yeah. because the the game can be so much to so many people, and especially like when it comes to changing decks, mm-hmm. that's just not for me. But like that doesn't mean it's wrong for anybody else to have that. No, absolutely. And even then, we all had this shared experience of cards that we tried out, and then cards we took away, and then cards we wanted to try but back out again, and that maybe they found a permanent home. Maybe we'll do these same mistakes again with things in the future as things drift over time. Like, who even knows? It's really, really interesting to I see mean, the lessons that you can learn from it all. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we all know that Deadbridge Chant never works however many times <laughs> that you've played it or put it back into decks. Like, we all there know that now. It's, it's 2021. Deadbridge Chant is still not good. So that can be for the show um, cards we re-added and then re-removed. Oh, yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know what, listeners, we would also <laughs> love to hear from you about cards that you took out of your deck and then put back in. What are some cards that you cut, but then you were like, no, I got to put that right back in. We'd love to hear your thoughts about it as well. Guys, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. This was so much fun. If our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast. Um, we have amazing guests on every single week, so make sure you tune in because every single week just seems to be more and more fun than the last. Yep, we have Warp Worlds happening now, the first time ever, and maybe not the last time. Had Warp mark. Worlds. <laughs> and Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on the other podcasts, CMDR Central. I am writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Plus, you can find the cast at EDH RecCast on both Facebook and on Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at The Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool custom EDH Rec sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>